0: I don't know if anyone's been keeping up with the Ryder Cup over the weekend or even the Rugby World Cup in the last couple of weeks, but one of the things that I've heard time and time again, in fact, this morning on the radio on the way in, I heard an interview about both of those things, and both of the interviews included lots of conversation around the term momentum. Momentum is something that's spoken of a lot, isn't it, especially in the sporting arena, where it's this idea of of the force being behind one side more than the other. So at the minute, momentum is with Europe kind of. Uh, at the minute, momentum is with Ireland, kind of. Scotland did well yesterday, but we'll, we'll see. Momentum is a big deal, and, and the dictionary defines momentum as, as the force that keeps an object moving, or the impetus gained by a moving object. And, and we know what that means. Many of us will be able to picture what that means. And, and with that idea of momentum in our minds, that's the kind of thing that I thought of whenever we've been considering the first four chapters of Joshua. It feels like momentum is with the people of God. It feels like they are going somewhere and everywhere they set their foot, God opens doors and things are moving forward. And as we've been studying, and maybe you've felt like that too, it seems like the nation of God's people has been making their way into this land that God has promised them. And as they've been doing so, their enemies have heard about everything that God has done. And we've seen phrases like chapter 2, verse 11, that their hearts have melted in fear, that their courage has drained away because of what God has done. Momentum seems to be with them. And then chapters 3 and 4 that we looked at two weeks ago, the people arrive at the Jordan River. And this this river in flood, this massive expanse of water, and God piles it up in a heap nearly 20 miles away so that they can walk through river in dry land he made a way and so now they find themselves we left them in chapter 5 verse 1 two weeks ago in the promised land their feet are on the ground that God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12 this is an incredible thing momentum seems to be with them it it almost seems to be unstoppable it's a given as to what's happening next momentum surely with God's people and momentum is with them because God had promised God had provided, and God had shown up in power. God, this was the land that God had promised his people. This is the land that God was giving his people. It was God who piled up the, the waters of the Jordan. It's God who split the Red Sea. It's God who brought the plagues that released them from Egypt. It is God's power. God is at work, and surely, from our point of view, as we read this story, we think momentum is with them. They're now going to go and take the land. In fact, maybe we could even say that having read chapter 5, verse 1, we should almost skip the next little section and jump straight to chapter 6 where they go and take Jericho. That's maybe what we would expect. The people have landed in Canaan, so now go and take it because God has given you possession of it. But actually, that's not quite the way things turn out. And maybe that's because God is in control. Let's pick up in in verse 1 of chapter 5 where we finished last week. Sorry, chapter 5 of Joshua verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. I mean, from from a human perspective, that's exactly what you want to hear, isn't it? The the people, once the Israelites were aware of that, they must have thought, brilliant, God has provided more. God has shown his power again. The promise is coming now. We are going to be the ones to see it. Let's go. But as I said, things don't tend to to work out that way for them. And from a military human perspective, perhaps we think, yes, we should go now. See the walls of Jericho coming down. Some of us knew that story already. But in God's ways, that's not what happens. The rest of chapter 5 is going to help us see that God's plans are not always what we would expect, and that's a good thing. God's timing is not always what we would expect, and equally that is good for us. Chapter 5 is one of those occasions where we are going to see the reality of Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And that is good. We should have gratitude. For that, that our God is so much greater than us, that his ways are way beyond ours. His thoughts are way higher than ours. And that is good. And so as we read on, and we will just read sections of this chapter as we go, and we'll pause as we make our way through. But as we read on, keep, a re, keep an eye out for the reality that even though things might not be going in the way that we might expect, the focus remains on God's promises, God's provision, and God's power. Promises, provision, and power. Not only that, take note of, as we're working through, of the unquestioning obedience of Joshua and the people in response to God's promises, God's provision, God's power. And so let's let's work our way through. We'll pick it up again in verse 2 of chapter 5 of Joshua. At that time, see, at that time, where had we just left it? Enemies melting in fear. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Well, th- this story has taken a turn that some of us might not have been expecting. The momentum seems to be with the Israelites. They're on the move, in the land, enemies melting in fear. And God's next step is to ask his people, command his people. To perform a medical procedure on all the fighting age men that will render them helpless for a few days. This doesn't seem to be the logical thing to do from our perspective. So what is going on? Well, thankfully, God's word tells us exactly why this is good. And verse 4, we'll read this whole section from verse 4 down to verse 9. Now, this is why he did so. Isn't that wonderful? God shows us his will uh, in his word. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt... All the men of military age died in the wilderness on their way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised to his ancestors to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. So this is made pretty clear for us, isn't it? And... It's, it's a terminology and it's a word that we're not very familiar with, but it's mentioned a lot here, this practice of circumcision. The generation of Israelites who had made it to the promised land hadn't been circumcised, and so God commands that this takes place now before any further advancement into the land takes place. And there's maybe initially just a couple of questions that are raised in our minds. Firstly, why was circumcision such a big deal for God's people? Why was this a necessary thing for his people to do now? And then secondly, why did that whole generation die in the wilderness? We're told a little bit in verse 6 that they had not obeyed the Lord. But how, how had that taken place? And I just want to quickly answer those because it helps us to understand why this is good that God causes his people to stop and do this practice. So why was circumcision such a big deal? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back a few centuries to when God called Abram. In Genesis 17, God calls Abram and and he he adds to the covenant that he had made in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God had promised Abram would have many offspring. And then in Genesis 17, verse 4, we read this wonderful, uh, wonderful promise. You will be the father of many nations. And indeed, at this stage, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, meaning father of many. Now, Abraham is 99 years old at this stage. He and his wife, Sarah, hadn't had children of their own at this point. Clearly, something miraculous would have to happen. And it did. Now is not the time, unfortunately, to go into that amazing story. But the point is true. God promised something and it happened. But what was this covenant that God made with Abraham? Well, it was the covenant of relationship between him and his people. I'm going to flick back to Genesis 17. It will appear on the screen as we read. But Genesis 17 verse 7 is key to what the essence of this covenant is. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. See, this was a covenant of relationship. This was a covenant where God was saying, I will be your God. You will be my people. This is who you are because of who I am. And then as part of this covenant, we see the sign of circumcision given. So if we jump down to verses 10 and 11 of Genesis 17, we see this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision is the sign of the promise. And that promise was that God would be the God of Abraham's descendants for generations. It would be, he would be the God of the great nation that would come from Abraham's line. And so at this stage, as we zoom back to Je- Joshua chapter 5, God is reminding his people of a, the remarkable promise that he made. He is their God. That's what circumcision was about. It was a mark of the people of God, the covenant that he had made with his people. And so this God who had split the Red Sea, who had provided for them in the wilderness, this God who had piled the Jordan into a heap, this is the God who had entered into an everlasting covenant relationship with this this group of people. He is their God. They are his people. This is a covenant relationship. And so perhaps we can begin to see why the sign of that covenant was so important. It was a tangible reminder to these people as they stood at Gilgal on the edge of Canaan, at the edge of Canaan, This was a tangible reminder to them of God's promise, his everlasting covenant of relationship with them. Relationship with them. That's what this was about. So why is circumcision such a big deal? Because it's a sign of the covenant, the everlasting covenant that Yahweh made with Abraham. Secondly then, what was the disobedience that led to this whole generation having to die in the wilderness? Well, again, we're told in verse six of chapter of chapter five of Joshua uh, that they had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. And then we're told that the Lord had promised that it would be the next generation who would go into the land. Well, what had happened? Well, again, we need to go back into the story a little bit. Numbers 14 is where we find the account where this takes place. This is when Moses and Aaron are still leading the people out of Egypt on their way to Canaan. They've just sent the spies in to, to suss out Canaan. 12 of them go in. 10 of them come back to say, This is too hard. This is going to be, the the, the land is too difficult for us to take. Two of them, Joshua, the same Joshua, and Caleb are the two who say, no, the Lord will give us this land. We must go. The 12 spies had tasted the milk and the honey. They had brought back incredible fruit from this land and still the negative message of the 12, of the 10, filters through the community and they grumble. They say, why did God bring us out of Egypt? It would have been better to die back there. In fact, why don't we elect a new leader to take us back and maybe we can be slaves again in Egypt? And so in light of this rebellion, God's anger starts to burn. And eventually God explains to Moses that even though he has forgiven them, that there's a consequence for their grumbling and their lack of faith. And so in Numbers fourteen twenty-nine, we see in this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who, is, who was counted in the census and who grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them into this wilderness and to enjoy the land that you rejected. And so now with all of this, we see the background of this whole scene, don't we? we see the significance of this new generation of Israelites entering into the land that God had promised, but they hadn't been circumcised on the way. The previous generation who had come out of Egypt were, but they had turned against God's path. They had had not believed in God's promise. And so God, faithful to his promise, in spite of his faithless people, he then says, okay, this new generation, you need to be reminded of the everlasting covenant that I made with you. And so that's, that might all sound like interesting history, but, but what is the point? What is the teaching? Well, surely one of the things for us to see is that God has paused the movement of his people so that he can prepare them. And not just prepare them as a nation, not just prepare them as a people, but I believe prepare their hearts for what is going on. If they had raced across the Jordan and ran straight in, it might, they might have been guilty of thinking, yeah, this is us doing this. And so God pauses them. To say, remember who you are, remember whose you are, and as we'll see in a few minutes, remember the power that I have as your God. And so he's preparing them to go, and today we're going to just pick out three things in which they're preparing. And this first lesson is that he's preparing them with a reminder of his everlasting promise. He's preparing them with a reminder of his everlasting promise. That's why he has paused the Israelites here at Gilgal. He is reminding them of his relationship with them, his faithfulness to them, his love for them, his everlasting covenant. As we've been thinking about throughout this whole series, God's words, God's promises are unbreakable. And he's reminding his people right at the shores, uh, right at the edge of this land, you are mine, I am your God. And that is a good thing to hear. So that's what this circumcision command was all about. It was this new generation in a new land, but they were God's people. His everlasting promise hadn't wavered one bit. Yahweh was their God. And so they must remember who they were and whose they were. They were God's people. And that God is the God who's in control. That God is the God who keeps his promise. So God was preparing them with a reminder of his everlasting promise. As we move on through verse 10, we're going to see the next reason the, or the next way in which God prepares these people. So back to Joshua 5, verse 10. Joshua 5, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And what I think one of the things we see here, and we'll see in the next couple of verses too, is that God is preparing them to go, and he's preparing them with an assurance of his ongoing provision. He's preparing them with an assurance of his ongoing provision. He had miraculously provided for them all the way, all the journey to this land. And well, now they've reached this land, his provision will continue. It's not as if God has said, okay, I've dropped you off here and I'll see you later. No, he is with them continually and he will continue to provide for them. And the first way in which we see this provision happening is in celebrating the Passover. This was a meal that his people had, had been had commanded to share in Exodus 12 just before they left Egypt. And it was a meal designed to help the people remember God's incredible provision of rescue. How God had provided a way for them to leave Egypt. And of course, that Passover meal is a pointer forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The one who would come from God as the ultimate provision of forgiveness of sin, of, uh, of a complete restoration and relationship with God through faith in what Christ has done. Just like the lamb was sacrificed for the Passover meal, so the lamb of God is sacrificed for our eternal security and forgiveness. And now, as the people are in the promised land, the time is right for them to share this meal once again. Indeed, the time isn't just right. The time is perfect. It's why we're given the timestamp at the start of verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month. Now, we know that we're still in the first month of the year here from how chapter 4 ended. And so, in the 14th day of the first month, well, if we rewind back to Exodus 12, when the Passover is given, it is on the 14th day of the first month that Passover celebrations are to begin It was the 10th day of the first month that they were to select the lamb. And then for four days, that lamb was checked over to make sure it was perfect and spotless. By the way, it was the 10th day of the first month that they crossed the Jordan River. And so God is perfectly in control. And he is reminding his people, I am providing for you. So remember the great provision that God has made for you. So God has been preparing them here. And as they sit now on the 14th day of the first month, God has ordained this wonderful meal to remind them of his miraculous provision. Just as they celebrated it before they left Egypt and before they crossed the Red Sea. Now that they have entered the promised land, having crossed the Jordan, they celebrate it again. And so they're reminded of God's miraculous provision. And in exactly the same way, this table of communion now speaks the same message to us. That we can remember God's faithfulness in the past which gives us hope for his future and therefore confidence in the present that he has us in. So we remember his faithfulness in the past, which gives us hope for his future, which is secure, which therefore enables us to live confidently in the present where he has us. And so God is showing them and assuring his people of his ongoing provision now that they've entered the land. But the second marker of God's provision is unpacked for us in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate the food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. These might feel like details we might skip over, but they are not insignificant details at all. See, as I mentioned earlier, Manna was the way in which God had provided for his people for 40 years in the desert. We see it starting, it instituted in in Exodus 16, where the people are complaining once again about the catering options in the desert after they left Egypt. And so God says, I will provide. And every morning when they woke, there was manna for the people. Just enough for what they needed. God had been providing every day for 40 years. As they dandered around and made their way to where he had them. And so this daily reminder was, uh, was for, the, for the people so they would remember his, his incredible provision. But now they set feet in the promised land. They no longer need that manna. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land where God had promised they would be fruitful. And so they can eat the produce of that land. We're told in verse 12, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain. And so they now harvest for themselves from the land that God had promised. And in some ways, this might seem unimpressive to us in many ways, but, but we need to realize that God's provision for his people hadn't stopped now that they're in the land. It had just changed. So, so God's provision doesn't stop with the manna. The manna stops, but that's because God has provided in another way. And I was struck with that this week. How, how lightly I open the cupboards and take what there is. God provides for us from his world so that we are sustained. And that's just one of the ways he provides. But now in their new home, a land that God had promised would be flowing with milk and honey, God is preparing them with an assurance of his ongoing provision. Through the Passover, yes, as they remember his promise. And through the daily food that they could take as they remember the land that he has promised to them. And so he's preparing them. And he's preparing them with a reminder of his everlasting promise. And he's preparing them with an assurance of his ongoing provision. And finally, the third thing we're going to look at is in verses 13 to 15, where we see God preparing them with the demonstration of his unmatchable power. Demonstration of his unmatchable power. Now, verses uh, 13 to 15 could well be considered to be the introduction to what is next in chapter 6. I think it might be, but it certainly continues the the flow that we have throughout here of God's provision and God preparing his people to go. Let's read these verses in verses 13 to 15. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, and so we have here a a change in focus from the people that have been provided, the people that have been uh, told that that covenant promise as a nation, now down to Joshua very personally. Joshua was near, near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's an incredible encounter. Joshua meets with this divine messenger and ends up flattening his face with his sandals off. And there's, there's a bit of debate about who this person is, the commander of the Lord. There are some who think this is God himself making himself visible. There are some who think this is the pre incarnate Christ come to talk to Joshua. There are some who think this is an angelic being who has come to bring a message from God. I, I, I don't think the text makes it abundantly clear. I have a suspicion but I don't think it's abundantly clear because I don't think the, per- the identity of this person is the point of what's being told here. I think rather than fi- trying to figure out who this person is, I think we're supposed to sit up and listen to what he says. So what does he say? And how does it show God's unmatchable power? Well, Joshua meets him with a very sensible question, pretty boldly approaches this guy to say, are you for us or for our enemies? Are you on our side or theirs? And the commander of the army of the Lord answers in a way that Joshua probably wasn't expecting. And I actually think the ESV probably has this slightly more correctly, where it just states that that this man answers no. Joshua's question was, are you for us or for our enemies? That's not a yes, no question. Yet the commander of the Lord's army says, no. In a sense, I am way above all of that. No. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. You see, this might sound like a strange answer to Joshua's question, but what I think it's showing is that this is not about whose side this man is on, but whose army he commands. David Jackman's really helpfully put it this way. He has not come to take sides, but to take charge. The point is this, the commander of the army of the Lord only has one commander in chief. His only focus is enacting the holy and righteous and divine will of Yahweh. So are you on Joshua's side or not? No, I'm on the Lord's side. See, this man shows that the Lord is the one who's ultimately in control. And he wants Joshua to recognize it afresh too before he goes any further in the land. And of course, Joshua's been through enough to witness the evidence, to know that God is sovereignly in control. I mean, we could talk about everything that he will have witnessed. He did come out of Egypt. He will have seen the Red Sea. He has just seen the Jordan River pile up in a heap. He has seen God providing in powerful ways time and time and time again. And so this reminder for him that God is sovereign over all things was hopefully just that. It was a reminder. It wasn't something he was learning for the first time. But now as Joshua prepares to, to obey the command of God, to take God's people into the land that God swore to them. Joshua gets another reminder of the unmatchable power of God. Yahweh's in control. And not only that, the, the commander of the, what the commander of the Lord's army asks Joshua to do would have made that even clearer, cemented it in Joshua's heart and mind, I think. In verse 15, the commander of the army of the Lord tells Joshua to take his sandals off because the feet that he's standing on is holy. So because this divine messenger is here, the ground is holy. God's presence is powerful. But also, that's a command that may sound familiar to some of us. If we know more of the story back in Exodus 3 when God calls Moses to go back into Egypt to rescue his people from the Egyptians and bring them to the promised land. God speaks to Moses from a bush that's on fire that isn't consumed. And as Moses approaches, God speaks and tells him in verse 3 of, chapter, of Exodus, sorry, verse 5 of Exodus 3. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And now we have Joshua being told the same thing. But, but the fact that Moses had this experience first, and I'm sure Joshua was aware of that, that wouldn't have diminished the power for Joshua in that moment. In fact, I think the opposite. See, if you can remember back to Joshua 1 verse 5, God promised to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. It's a promise that he repeats in chapter, chapter 3 verse 7. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And now we have an encounter where God, a divine being is showing up And telling Joshua exactly the same thing that he had told Moses. This was further confirmation if Joshua needed any. That God is in control. That God is with Joshua. God will continue to lead. Just as he was with Moses, he will be with Joshua. And so as God was calling and equipping Moses in Exodus to prepare Moses for the mission of his lifetime. So now God is calling Joshua once again to prepare him and equip him for the mission of his lifetime. God is unmatchable in his power, whether it is the mighty acts like piling up the river or splitting the Red Sea or the daily provision of manna or in the very personal, I am going to fulfill my promise to you, Joshua, in a way that you cannot question because I will be with you as I was with Moses. And so if God has this unmatchable power, what are we supposed to do with that? How do we respond? That's why I love the final four words of this chapter. After all that has been said to Joshua, and Joshua did so. And Joshua did so. Now, I know that's in relation to taking off the sandals, but as we read through Joshua time and time again, we see that kind of reaction from him. God says something, and Joshua does so. Surely it's because Joshua knew the everlasting promise of God. He knew the ongoing provision of God. He knew the unmatchable power of God. And so he did so. His obedience to God's leading was immediate and radical and wholehearted and unwavering. And that's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us today because God hasn't changed. His promise is everlasting. His ongoing provision is secure for his people. He has not lost an ounce of his power. And so when he speaks, how do we respond? See, we do know that God hasn't changed as we come to a finish. We do know that God hasn't changed. His everlasting promise is still true. He is still the God of his people. He still enters into relational covenant with his people. And yes, the sign for that covenant is no longer circumcision. But as the New Testament shows us through examples like Colossians 2, we are marked by the inner transformation of the heart by faith in Jesus Christ. This is Colossians 2:11 to 12. In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. So this is one of the passages where we see baptism replacing circumcision as the outward sign of the inner work of grace of God. What it means to be God's person now is demonstrated by our lives. The point is this, throughout Scripture, throughout all of history, the promise of God is everlasting. He is still the God of his people. He is still bringing people into relationship with him. The promise of God continues to be everlasting. And likewise, the provision of God was demonstrated in the Passover. And of course, we see that most supremely in the meal of his new covenant people around the Lord's table. This table is a reminder to us of the Lamb of God, as, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The, the innocent, spotless Lamb who died in the place of sinful people. So that sin could be atoned for, forgiveness could be granted to those who repent and believe. And so this is a glorious picture for us of God's provision for us in Jesus Christ. God's ongoing provision continues today. And finally, the unmatchable power of God hasn't faded over the centuries. He is still sovereignly in control. He's still working all things out in his way and in his time. As we've seen from Joshua 5, one of the ways in which we can demonstrate and we can see God's power at work here is that he told, he told and commanded the Israelites to perform this act of circumcision, as I said earlier, wiping out and making very vulnerable all the military-aged men in the camp. And when did he decide to do that? While the enemies are paralyzed with fear. So God paralyzes the enemies and then works in his people. In this occasion, God is sovereignly over control, over everything. In the huge, massive, miraculous, and in the tiny, everyday, seemingly mundane provision of food in our cupboards. And so God's power is, is, is unmatchable. His plans are being worked out. And yes, that might mean that things as we go through life, it might feel like there's interruptions in our life. But God's plans can never be interrupted. And and what difference does that make? Well, Well, it means that we can completely trust in that holy and powerful and sovereign God. It means we can obey his holy and powerful and sovereign commands. Because his ways are good. His ways are right. His ways are true. His ways are eternal. And ultimately, his ways lead us to his presence And in his presence, according to Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy. And so we can obey. So as the people of God stood in the land that God had promised them, he takes time to prepare them for what is to come by reminding them of his everlasting promise, by assuring them of his ongoing provision, and by demonstrating his unmatchable power. And this is our God. He he is still completely worthy of the same worshipful awe that we read of in Scripture. And he's also still completely worthy of the same kind of reverent obedience that we see in Joshua. And for us today, for, for his people today, for those of us who know and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, as we seek to follow him into another new week, whatever it has in store, we do not know what it has in store, but the sovereign one does. And so perhaps he's preparing us for what lies ahead. Preparing us with a reminder of his eternal everlasting promise. Preparing us with an assurance of his ongoing provision for us. Preparing us with a demonstration of his mighty, unmatchable power. And so whatever God has before you this week, go into it full of faith. Not that it will all work out rosy, but that he is at work. And therefore, his being in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, these, these incredible accounts of you at work in your people from generations, centuries ago, yet, Father, your word by your spirit still speaks to us. And so I pray, Father, that what you have wanted to say this morning will resonate in our hearts and find root there. Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers. And so we would indeed trust and obey in the everlasting promise of God. We would recognize and be grateful for, ever, ever thankful for the ongoing provision of Yahweh. That we, Father, would know and see before us the unmatchable power. And as we do all of those things, Father, may we trust you. Like this example shows us of how how Joshua and the Israelite people trusted you. Even when in their minds things might not have made sense. But they trust in your goodness. Because you are always good. Your plans are always good because they are your plans. And your ways, Lord, are higher than ours. Your thoughts are higher than ours. And so would you help us to trust you, Father. When it makes sense to us and when it doesn't, help us to trust In your wonderful name we pray, amen.